0: Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. So let's open up our Bibles, if that's all right. Um, please remember to bring a Bible every week, whether it's on your phone or in your hand. Um, and maybe as you're doing that, we're going to open up our Bibles to John chapter 11. So, If you take your Bible and you go to the second half of it, the New Testament, you'll see it starts with four accounts of the life of Jesus. There's the account according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, and then we get to the gospel, the good news, the life of Jesus according to John. And we'll be reading chapter 11, verse 17. Now, as you're paging, just to get you up to speed, we are in a series that we are calling Jesus Uncensored, Encountering the Walking, Talking, Living God. And all throughout the ministry and the life of Jesus, he encounters these prominent and these you know, professional and, and very you know, people of esteem. And at times he also encounters very lowly people, destitute people, desperate people. But all throughout the golden thread is each of these encounters that people have with them, it's life-changing. No one walks away the same from an encounter with Jesus. And as we read these 2,000 years later, it's as if the text comes alive. It's not just the book. This book wants to read you. It wants to grip you. It wants to bring you into its story. It comes alive. As Hebrews would say, it's this double-edged sword that cuts through soul and, 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 and marrow and bone. And that's what happens as we encounter Jesus afresh. So over these couple of weeks, we want to look at different encounters that Jesus had with people and see how we maybe, afresh, can encounter God through His Spirit and His written Word or trusting that maybe if you've been doing churchy things or you finding out about the Christian faith, you're unsure about what it means to follow Jesus, that you would encounter Him for the first time and experience this for yourself. So, just a note with that is we're also trusting that these encounters, it's not just for us, but it's through us. So, every week, we're giving out one of these cards. If you haven't gotten one, you can get it at the Info Hub afterwards. But on these cards, every single week, you can put this on your fridge, in your car, in your back pocket, uh, stick it on your friend's forehead, whatever works for you to keep this close by, especially if it really speaks to you on the Sunday. And just two questions. Question one will always have to do with your personal encounter with God through Jesus and His Spirit and His people and His Word. And the second question will always be about other people. People encountering Jesus through your life. So please keep these close by. And this week, we are looking at the encounter that Jesus had with two grieving sisters. Now, the background to this is Jesus has a whole group of people around him always, but some of them are closer than others. And three people that we meet in his ministry throughout these accounts of his life are Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. Now, Mary and Martha, you meet earlier in the story, Jesus comes to their house, the one's the busy one, the other one is the sitting at his feet one, and then their brother, and it says of his brother, you'll see now as we read through the passage in verse 3, that he is the one that Jesus loved. That's a phrase in their time and in their culture, but also in Jesus' ministry, that would speak of his inner circle. So, These are his friends. If Jesus wanted to go and watch the Lion King at IMAX 3D and, you know, get some Krispy Kreme afterwards, he would take people like Lazarus, Mary, and Martha with him. They were his inner circle. And we see leading up to this moment that Lazarus becomes deathly ill. He's on his deathbed. And Mary and Martha, they've seen Jesus do incredible things. So they call out to him. They get the word to him to say, please come. We know that you can do something about this. But by the time Jesus gets there to the house where they are, the people are in a state of mourning because he had passed away. And I want to say that last week, as we spoke about Nicodemus and these, these two accounts, the Samaritan woman, the insider and the outcast, the prominent religious man, and this almost shameful past lady, we saw something of what was wrong with the world. That all of us have this deep need that we try and fill, like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, with religiosity or with sex. And we see this week... What or who can set the world right? So read with me. John chapter 11, verse 17. It says, When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me... Will never die. Do you believe this? He asks her. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, almost exactly the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And in the shortest verse in the whole New Testament, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who have opened the blind man's eyes, this earlier account of a healing, also have kept this man from dying? I want us to see three things from this account this morning, very briefly, that we learn about Jesus and how we encounter him afresh for the first time. And the first thing is the otherness of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man. The second thing that we're going to look at is the effectiveness of Jesus, that he perfectly meets us in our deepest need. And thirdly, the furiousness of Jesus, that he reveals something to us about God's posture towards sin death, and brokenness. So let's look at this first one, the otherness of Jesus. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. You see, it's so strange, this interaction between Jesus and these two sisters, it's two people with exactly the same circumstances with their brother saying almost exactly the same thing to Jesus, yet he radically differs in how he deals with them. I don't know if you saw that. So to Martha, you know, they both say to him, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But to Martha, it's almost like he comes out guns blazing and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life with me. It's never too late. It's almost like her heart, the flow of her heart is toward despair. And Jesus pushes against that flow. He moves against it and he says, no, I want to challenge your doubts. I want to encourage you. I'm to bring you to a place of truth. Mary, on the other hand, exactly the same thing. She says exactly the same thing to Jesus, and Jesus stands there almost speechless. He doesn't say anything. In fact, he bursts into tears. He enters into this place of agony with her, and he stands with her crying, just saying, where is he? Where have they put him? Now, I want to tell you that the fact that he deals so radically different with them is not just because. It's not simply trying to tell us that Jesus has a high EQ. He understands people, when to be soft, when to be direct. You know, he's got good people skills. He's read, you know, Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. That's not what this passage is trying to tell us. It's trying to show us something much deeper about the character and the identity of Jesus. It shows us this encounter. It almost dramatizes something that the rest of the New Testament says over and over and over again as a statement of truth that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He's truly God and he's fully man. It's not just that he is, you know, God come to hide in a person, or he's a man with a veneer of spirituality about him, or someone who's really God conscious, or something like that. No, it says that he is the God man. That's a crazy thought. That's way out there. You see, many people would say, well, I don't even know if this Jesus thing is what we have here. I think people just made it up after the fact. They were so desperate. They just kind of mythologized the Jesus story. Now, we can't deal with that. That's a big question. A whole bunch of very helpful resources with that challenge. But one thought, just think with me this morning. Just imagine if you were to make up a story about a divine deity who comes into the, the form of a person, hiding kind of in person form. How do you think you would portray that person in the accounts of his life? He would walk around with this kind of, you know, this chest out confidence, almost floating around with this this air of, of, you know, mystery about him. And in this moment where he can actually do something about it, don't you think you would write him? Because he's he's this God in a person, you would write him almost smiling. Almost, you know, he just walks in there with confidence, almost like rubbing his hands together saying, just watch what I'm about to do. That's what you would do. But none of us would ever write about God himself, who at one stage is so confident, and the next moment he breaks down into tears. He's so caught up in the agony of Mary that he stands with her, absolutely broken by emotion. No, what this is trying to show us is that God is fully God and fully man in Jesus When he confronts Martha, he says to, I am the resurrection and the life. That's who I am. I'm here. This is the truth. When he says that, that is a statement of being God-like. God is the only one who can give life, who can take life, who can grant life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is making a statement about himself. Now, maybe another challenge. Some people would say, well... I don't know about that. I don't think Jesus ever looked at himself as God. I think he, he thought he was a, an enlightened person. He was a prophet of some kind. Most world religions recognize Jesus as a prophet. And you would say, no, I don't think Jesus ever refers to himself as God. I want to challenge you every single chapter of the Gospels has a reference either indirect or directly to Jesus, not just as a nice guy, as a great example, as a wise teacher, but as the God-man coming to earth. You've got indirect references. I'm, just, I'm going to keep you with all these, but think about something like Luke chapter 10, where Jesus claims to have witnessed the fall of Satan from the presence of God. What kind of a man would claim that? In Mark 2, as with so many other moments, he walks around, and he not just heals people, or he teaches, because you know, many people can do that. He says, I forgive you. Can you imagine that? Imagine Wayne and Melissa. I come upon them. They've had this big, you know, argy-bargy in the house. They're trying to sort it out, and I walk in, and I say, I forgive you guys. Don't you think you would be like, wait, that's not how it works. So like, I forgive, and, you know, we're we sorting this out, and I just walk past. and I'm like, don't worry. I forgive you guys. <laughs> that's what Jesus did. People would bring him people that are sick. A lame man comes to him, and people are like, just heal, just heal. He says, I'm going to do something even greater. I forgive you. But there are also these direct references. John chapter 5, a crowd wants to stone Jesus. Why? Because he's very, you know, he's sly with who he thinks he is. No, they want to stone him because he has made such a strong reference to equality with God. John chapter 8, he says not only is he eternally existent before Abraham, he takes this holy title in Exodus and he says, before Abraham was, I am. If you were a Jew, that would have literally blown your mind. Abraham was the rock star of the Jewish faith. You wouldn't have like sports stars against your wall. You would have a poster of Abraham against your wall. And Jesus says, before he was, I am. Or how about in in John chapter 14, where he says, I don't just claim to some truth or I have uh, the the direction of life. He says, I am the truth. I am the life. Or finally, John chapter 20, where Thomas, doubting Thomas, as he's often called, he says to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. For a Jewish man, that's like short of, of insanity. And Jesus does not rebuke him. He accepts his worship. Every single page of the New Testament makes it so clear. Jesus is not just enlightened. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just an example. He is the God-man. Now, why is that so important, you think, this morning? Here's it. Because a radical ministry asks for a radical response. If Jesus simply claimed to be a good man, the onus on us would be, try and be good people. Just try at least. Come on we can be better, right? If Jesus was simply a good teacher, you could say, well, take from his teaching what you think is wise for 2019. Apply it as best you can. But Jesus comes and he says, I'm not a teacher just. I'm not simply a good man. I am the God man. I'm God incarnate. I come to do a final work, a finished work. That puts such a big ask on you. That's John Duncan, the 17th century preacher. C.S. Lewis who would later make this thing famous, famous of the trilemma. Either Jesus is Lord, he is who he says he is, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. You have to pick. You can't sit on the fence. If he's a liar and a lunatic, that's fine. If you've looked into his life and his integrity and his teaching, if you've looked at the incredible things that have come off of his life, no one has ever repeated what this man has done. No one was able to do what he did up to that point. If you say, I don't believe it, that's fine. But if he is who he says he is, if he's Lord of all, it means that he deserves my everything. It means that I should bring him my whole heart, the whole house that is my life, not just my bedroom or my kitchen or my toilet. That's usually how we come to Jesus. Sort out the toilet area of my life, please. No, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all in my life. Jesus is the God man. He says, actually, to Martha, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe me? He says, Yo, (laughs) that's strong. No good teacher says that. He says, Do you believe in me? Listen to what the Yale University historian, Kenneth Ladorette, he says, It's not his teaching which makes Jesus so remarkable although these would be enough to give him distinction. He says, no, it's the combination of the teaching with the man himself. It must be obvious to any thoughtful reader of the gospel that Jesus regarded himself and his message as inseparable. He was a great teacher, but he was more. Do you believe that this morning? We see that with Mary and Martha this morning, and it's something that's so difficult to describe, and it's even harder to believe that Jesus is not 50% man and 50% God or 80% man and 20% God or, or vice versa. No, that he is fully God and fully man come to this earth. Do I believe that there's an otherness to Jesus that you would not believe? But secondly, I think there's the effectiveness of Jesus we see in this passage. It's not just that he is this otherness about him. It's not just that he is fully God and fully man, but that he comes to perfectly address the need that we have at the deepest recesses of our heart. You see, no other religion believes that the transcendent creator, the one who gives life, the originator of all things, the unmoved mover, that he would come into this frail kind of human form, that he would be so taken in by someone's hurt and pain that he would break down in tears. But what I want to show you is, even if you can't wrap your head around that yet, if you look at how he reacts to these two sisters, you will come to see that who he is and what he does is exactly what you need. You see, when it comes to Martha, she's broken. She's broken. And he says to her, I am resurrection, life, I'm truth. It's unmoving in me. What does he do? He gives her the ministry of truth. (laughs) He gives her the ministry of truth. Because of his divine nature, he's high enough to bring her up to the stars, in a sense. Let me show you the bigger picture. Let me put you at ease. Let me show you what you don't understand. But with her sister, he doesn't give her the ministry of truth. He gives her the ministry of tears, (laughs) Because that's what she needs at that very moment. Martha needed truth at that moment. That's the thing that she needed. But Mary needed the ministry not of truth, but the ministry of tears. Jesus' divine nature means that he can take Martha up to the stars, as it were. But he is low enough in his human nature so that he can enter into the brokenness of Mary's heart with absolute integrity. He can stand with her, broken, hurt, because he is both of those things. Do you know that you and I are often in need of both the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears? Sometimes I need a good friend who will shake me, grab me by the shoulders and say, wake up, (laughs) look around you. This is not good. This is not who you've been made to be. This is not the path that God has chosen for you. I'm calling you. I need sometimes that truth. Sometimes I need someone just to be with me, just to step into your life and not have answers, not have theories, but just be there. Just the ministry of tears. And we all have seen what happens when you mix those two up, right? When you give the wrong thing at the wrong time. I wanna tell you that if you think that I'm a good counselor, you are going to get the ministry of truth when you probably need the ministry of tears. I'm not good with that, I suck. I honestly, I'm bad with that. I've so many times had people coming into my office, you know, back in in Dr. Bloom, and then they would say, you know, this is where I'm at and this. And like two hours later, I realized I should have just kept my mouth shut and said, I hear you. I don't cry very easily, but I could have at least pretended to cry with them, right? I can have the tears on the inside or something like that. But very often we mix those up. I remember some of our good friends, in just two weekends' time, we're going to have our big five weekend, something we do once a year, our five school friends, we get together every year, but those same friends, the other four, in my second year of university, I had reconnected with an old friend, we've known each other forever, but we had gotten lost, I would say, you know, we, our paths diverged, and main reason for it is we are almost exactly the same, but with very different worldviews. Our value set is literally like 180 degrees. And for some reason, I got so caught up in this friendship with this guy again. We were, we were like soulmates. They didn't believe anything in the same kind of line. And more and more, I spent almost all of my time. I think Shay got so concerned in that season as well because they could see, she could see that my values were changing. I was being influenced. It's not just spending time. Bad company corrupts but, well, corrupts bad Bad company corrupts good character, right? That's what the Bible says. That was happening to me. And you know what my friends did? They organized an intervention. (laughs) So I was almost lured like a mouse with some cheese into this, you know, one friend's house into this room. And I get there and here all of them are sitting. And they had a moment of truth with me, a ministry of truth moment. Joe, this is not who you want to be. And we love you enough to tell that to you. That saved my life at that moment. But I think of another friend from high school, at the age of forty, him and his brother, their parents, amazing, both of them, incredible lawyers, on the road, drunk man on the N1, slams into them, both dead on the spot. These two young men, 14 years old, lose both of their parents. I remember so many people. Trying to give them truth at that stage. This is what God is doing. Don't worry, let me tell you. Let me give you the perspective. This is why he's doing it. This is how he's doing it. This is the, and I just realized, even as a young person myself, this is not what they need. They don't need the ministry of truth. They need the ministry of a community in tears with them. Guess what? Wherever you find yourself, Jesus meets us perfectly in our deepest need. Wherever you are in life, I don't have the answers for you. I don't often have the tears for you. But Jesus, through his word and his spirit and his people, he perfectly meets us at our deepest need. And can I challenge us as a church? Especially for those who are not yet part of what we see as the the community of God. That yes, God had done something in Jesus' past tense. But he is doing something at this moment through his spirit and his church. He started a healing process 2,000 years ago, but He is healing today through His people. And my challenge to us is, who are those people in your life at the moment who are in need of either the ministry of truth or of tears? Who is the neighbor or the colleague that you're maybe just looking at, thinking someone should do something about this? Yes, I agree, it's you. Jesus has called you as His agent of truth and of grace, of love, of tears. Who are those people in your life at the moment that God is calling us to reach out to? Because it's this paradox of Jesus that he is in this one moment so strong in truth and the next moment so frail in emotion. He is fully God and fully man. I love what Tim Keller, just read this with me. This is so amazing. Just speaking about how he perfectly meets us where we are. He says, Jesus, he is the lion and the lamb. He's absolutely approachable to the weakest and the broken. He's completely fearless before the corrupt and the powerful. He's tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, unhesitating authority uh, with a complete lack of self-absorption, holiness and unending conviction without any shortage of approachability, power without insensitivity. Jesus is God become human wherever we are. Jesus will perfectly meet us in our deepest need. There's an effectiveness to him that's so beautiful. That's so powerful. But the third thing, it's not just that there is this this otherness to him, that he's God and man. There's not just this effectiveness to him, that he perfectly meets us in our need, but there is a furiousness in Jesus in this passage. And that's the most striking feature of this interaction. It reveals to us the posture that God has toward the sin and the death and the brokenness of mankind. You see, because we are stuck with the last question. Why would God do this? Why would God enter into the muck and the destruction and the brokenness and sin and rebellion of mankind in the person of Jesus? Why would he do that? So let me read to us the last portion of this passage and we'll see what I think the answer is. John 11 verse 30, I'd Read with me in your Bible. It says, then Jesus deeply moved again. We're going to get to that now. Came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him. This is actually a bit comical, I think. Lord, there's already a stench because he has been dead four days. So she says in the New King James Version, he stinketh. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you? that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you have sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. It's powerful stuff. But this, I think, is so amazing. It says in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. That's amazing that all the commentaries you can look at all have this same frustration with the English translations. Almost all of them. Because it's almost saying it's like they're chickening out on what the, the, the Greek is actually saying here. Because the Greek word that we translate in most of our Bibles is he's deeply moved. You know, he's troubled. It, it's, it's much stronger. It actually means that Jesus is billowing with anger. He's angry. He's furious. <laughs> and then he moves. Now, the question is, furious toward whom or what? There's no sign that he's angry at the family, like you made this happen, or the sisters, or, you know, the people, or the crowd, or, or Lazarus. He's not angry at them. So what is he angry about? He's angry at death. He's furious toward that which steals from, destroys, and disintegrates what he most loves. His people, the pinnacle of his creation. And, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, the other day I was walking with my kids in our little security village there, and this one Tenant, I guess, was a bit lax, and so their little dog, it's a very small little dog, so it's not this big moment, but this little dog comes out running towards us, but our kids, I mean, they're small. Mia's two years old, so even a small dog to her is like a medium-sized horse, you know, running towards you, like a pony-sized thing with sharp teeth, and so this dog just bothers us. It just keeps coming back. Every time we turn our backs, it wants to kind of nip on our heels, and I like chase it away. Then it comes back, chase it away. And eventually a driver comes past, and he, he sees what's going on. So he drives in between us and the dog for like a hundred meter stretch until the dog kind of, I guess, loses interest. But that was like a comical moment. But I was just thinking of, we were speaking about it in our preaching prep. Imagine that it was this massive dog, this scary dog this genuinely horse-sized dog that you often get in the streets, and this dog wants to attack my children. Do you think that any father that loves his kids would not dive headlong in fury at that animal to protect them? In that moment, my hate almost would burn for that animal because of my love for my kids. Friends, hear me. If you think that God does not get angry, you make a big mistake. The Bible says he's slow to anger. Sometimes with certain people, centuries to wait. You know why he gets angry? He gets angry because he loves. If I truly love something, I will be angry about other things. If I love my children, I will be angry at things that steal from them, that break them down, that disintegrate them. And Jesus here, he does not come into the situation saying, Hey, well, guys, death, you know, it happens, death in taxes, it's one of those things, get used to it, you know, it's going to happen to all of you guys in any way. Or, no, he doesn't do that. He comes in and he says, he stares, you know, face to face. He looks into the eyes of the thing that is the most scary reality to every human being on this earth, death itself. The loss of life, the loss of love, the loss of a loved one, and he looks into the eyes of that and he is angry. He's angry at it. This is not right. This is not what it should be. He's furious in that moment. And even though he is God, he's not angry at himself either. So what does that tell us? Number one, it tells us that death and sin and rebellion is not part of God's original good design. It's not part of God's intent. It's not part of what he has for us. But maybe you say, well, if that's the case, then why doesn't God just come to earth and just rid the earth of evil and suffering? Just come to earth and just sort it out. Come with a sword and just chop away at evil and suffering. The problem with that is, and even if you're religious or not, spiritual or not, you would have to agree with the fact that that is a statement that lacks massive self-awareness. Because if you and I were honest with ourselves, we would admit that most of the wrong and the sin and the brokenness that we see in this world is the result of our own hearts. Most, if not all, of the suffering we find in this city is a direct result of the selfishness and the hate and the anger and the greed of mankind in our own hearts. I want to read this to you the Russian novelist and historian. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he wrote this book, The Gulag Archipelago. This is an incredibly, you read this book half a sentence at a time because it wrecks you. It's about the, the death camps of Soviet Russia, very similar to what happened in Nazi Germany. And just the accounts of how horrifically bad we can treat each other, like animals, worse than animals. And listen to what he says. He says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. That's what we like to think, right? Those evil people out there. If God can just sort them out. But he says, and if it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. That's a very self-righteous statement. But he says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. That's the truth. If God were to come to this earth with sword in hand and cut away at evil and suffering, we would not be left standing. But that is the beautiful thing about the fury of Jesus in this moment. God does not come in Jesus with sword in hand, He comes with nails in His hands. He does not come to dish out judgment, He comes to bear judgment on our behalf. And that's what you see here, friends. Listen to this just beautiful verse, First Peter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, for us. Why? That he might bring you to God. He is furious with death and rebellion and sin, but he comes to bear it upon himself. And you see it so clearly. Let me leave you with this thought. You know, Jesus, after this, so many times in his ministry, you'll see that every time he has a miraculous show of power, especially when he heals people, the religious elite of the day, the Jewish council, they get more and more nervous. Who is this guy? He's not just teaching. He's not just gathering or following. He's doing things, and it's making us very uneasy. We won't be able to control this guy. We won't be able to steer him. It looks like he's building his own thing. So progressively, they, they, they start building this case. We need to get rid of this Jesus. And after this moment, this specific moment with Lazarus, it says this in John 11, verse 53, after he heals him, it says, so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. And they did. They nailed him to a cross. But here's the idea, friends. Think about this. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that if he heals Lazarus, He's signing his own death certificate. If he were to act in his fury toward the death and the sin and the brokenness in this moment, if he were to call Lazarus from the grave, he would be putting himself in the grave. And that's why at the end of that first passage, it says when he cries out, the people have this moment where they say, wow, how he loved him. Today, we should stand back and say, wow, how he loved. Loved us because Jesus knew for you and me if he is going to rescue us from the grave he will have to go to the grave if he was going to rid us from death and sin and brokenness he would have to bear it upon himself and that's why with emotion he cries out Lazarus come from the grave So I want to ask us to stand maybe together. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. And this morning, if you were perceptive coming in, you would have seen we're going to to use communion together this morning, the Lord's Supper. And Jesus so poignantly says we should do this in remembrance of him. And maybe just before we do that, at the end of that moment, when Mo and the guy see that most of us are done, We'll sing a last song in response together, but I want us just to think about this before we go to these four tables set out around the venue. Just two questions to us this morning. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower this morning, can I encourage you, can I ask you this question? Do you find yourself living from this finished work that Jesus has done? Do you find that as the the highest truth of your life? or if I were to ask you this morning, tell me about how's it going with your relationship with God? How's it going with your faith? Are you going to start by saying, "Ah, oh, Joe, you know, I didn't, read, I didn't read a whole bunch of Bible this week, you know, but I'm, I'm back at church this morning, you know, so I'm, I'm getting it done and, and I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to go to my community group this Wednesday and I'm going to definitely read a bit more in this card, you know, I'm going to keep this card close. I'm going I'm to get it done. You shouldn't get it done. You should get it deeper into your heart that it has been done because the degree to which that melts your heart it will release a fire and a passion and a confidence in your faith that will pull you closer to Jesus, and your intimacy with Him will go from strength to strength. Your effectiveness for Him in the city, when you live not for, but from what He has done. But I also want to ask you: if you have done many religious things in your life, and you've done the church thing, and you've you've heard the sermons, and you've listened to the tapes, and you've given money, but you've never actually... Or like the Samaritan woman from last week, you've been running away from God so far as you can, as hard as you can, as fast as you can. And you've been in every bed and every bottle. You've tried every business venture, but you have not been able to satisfy that deep longing in your heart. Can I challenge you this morning that Jesus calls you not to try harder, not to pick up religious practices, but to come and fall before him so that he can pick you up and say, my son, my daughter, look at how I loved you. I don't come with a sword. I come with nail-pierced hands. And if that's you this morning, the Bible says it so beautifully. In Romans 10 verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved if that's you this morning if you respond to God can I challenge you with just two things take one of our new life booklets grab a friend that you know is a Christian and say please work through this with me drink coffee with me lead me disciple me journey with me slot into community and secondly get baptized that's what the Bible says every Christ follower the first thing we do in obedience to God is we have ourselves baptized by the people of God if that's what you need to do maybe you're a Christian you have not done that yet Oh God, there's a spot where you can say, I want to get baptized. We would love to join you with you in that. So let's pray together. Jesus, our prayer this morning is that we would be captivated again by the God-man Jesus. May you just flow with your spirit into every hurt and pain in our soul this morning. God, thank you that it has been done and we can live from that reference. We worship you this morning. And as we take bread and as we take juice, we celebrate your broken body and your blood that flowed for us. May it bring joy to our hearts. And may it fill this place with worship this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.